About a quarter of our guys were first arrested before the age of 10. And what I say to people is, we call America the land of second chances, yet we make handcuffs that are small enough to fit around the wrists of even a four-year-old. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Kat, welcome. I'm excited to have you on the Elevate podcast. Thanks, Bob. Excited to be on it. You've spent a good part of your career working with people who've been incarcerated. How did you gravitate towards that purpose? I started off working in finance and venture capital and private equity, and I was looking for my calling and purpose on earth. I could see that I was good at making money and I was on track to make even more money, but what I could also see, and not everyone who was wealthy, but in many people who are wealthy, was that wealth doesn't equate purpose. And in fact, many people who made more money just got more concerned about their things and their things owned them more than their, they owned their things. And so I was looking for the meaning of life. And I started saying yes to all kinds of things. I went to Romania and worked in an orphanage with HIV positive orphans. I said yes to a bunch of things and never thought that prison would be where I would end up. And uh, when I was 26, I got invited on a prison visit by a JP Morgan executive. And she asked me my first reaction was, no, thank you. Because when I was 12 years old, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered. And I had a very low opinion of anyone who was incarcerated. I thought they were all the scum of the earth. I thought they could rot and die in that place. I was proud to be tough on crime, like many politicians that we know. So that wasn't for me. What do you think causes so many people to write off? People who are previously incarcerated or are now as irredeemable I think you've proven through your program that that's not the case and, and that it's a mistake. But what are the most common reasons for that? I don't sugarcoat the fact that the people I work with have made really terrible decisions. And their decisions not only hurt themselves, not only hurt communities and taxpayers, because we have to pay to support their incarceration, they hurt other human beings. And the guys I work with would be the first to admit that they have irreparably caused harm. And so it's easy to hate people who have hurt others and to not even want to consider whether there's a backstory, why it happened, how it happened. It's easy to not think about them as human beings, especially when media portrays them as being wild caged animals. And then many of the people that I serve not only made a bad decision that landed them in prison, but after they get to prison, they continue often in this cycle of violence. And so they continue making bad decisions. And it becomes so easy to label and write somebody off when they make a series of bad decisions. And I think for all those of us who do that, who point the finger, maybe there's something about us feeling a little bit better about ourselves, a little bit superior to that, or like, at least I'm not like those people. And in the work that I do, I work hard to level the playing field and to say, we're really not very different. And any one of us could end up in blues in California, in the prison system, people wear blues. And for example, 
I don't know a single volunteer, maybe there's one or two out there, who haven't gotten in a car and driven after having one too many drinks. And most volunteers who have done that, and I've brought 7,000 volunteers to prison through my programs that I've started in my life, most volunteers didn't get in trouble for that. Most volunteers didn't have another car jump out in front of them, and thankfully they didn't kill a family of four while driving drunk. But if you had, you committed the same act that got some of my guys a 10 or 20 year sentence. And talking about sentence, can you explain what mandatory minimums are and why they're really so damaging? So mandatory minimums are when judges, regardless of the circumstance, a judge has to give out, say, a minimum of five years or sometimes 20 years, and the circumstances don't get to play into it at all. And judges and juries should, I believe, that they should be able to have discretion based on the circumstances of a case. Because sometimes, yeah, it might be a person's third strike, but maybe they really weren't guilty of it, or maybe it was an act of self-defense, or maybe there were some situations around it. And then when a judge's hands are tied and they have to give out a sentence that they don't even believe in, I think that's a sad thing. It's a total waste of taxpayer dollars, too. And another thing, you know, we'll talk about a little bit, a visit a couple of weeks ago on your program to one of the prisons. But one of the things that I heard over and over was, and I could see the other side of it, was that these sort of additional penalties given for being part of a gang, which it seemed like in some, for some people exceeded whatever it was they did. And I could see on the DA side or saying we're going to clean up the town and whatever, but it seems like there's a real human toll to that on the other side. And there's a reason why many of these people had fallen into gangs. In most uh, systems, I believe that being in a gang is conducting criminal activity with another person. It is rare that criminal activity is conducted alone. I mean, even if if you have ever bought a drug in your life, you bought it from someone who's selling the drug and we're at a conference right now, and I think most people in this room have probably purchased weed at some point in their lives. So by the technical definition, many people here have engaged in some sort of gang activity. I know that I'm you know, minimizing what it, some of the people that I work with have done because they've been involved in much more entrenched criminal activity. But nearly all of them have been involved in street gangs for most of them. They got involved as children in these street gangs. They were looking for community, for protection, for big brothers. Their fathers were not around. And yeah, little boys band up and do stupid things. And so they were 10 years old when they got jumped into a gang without even thinking about what the consequences of that are. And then when they become incarcerated, yes, if you have any gang affiliation, if you have a tattoo or whatever, that can be used against you and it gives you extra points, sends you to a maximum security prison. Most of the people that I work with were convicted before the age of 18. Many of them were sent to adult institutions. And when you're younger, you're considered higher risk. And so these young kids are actually physically smaller and they're more immature. And then they're getting sent to these maximum security prisons with People have done a lot of time, so then they really want to act hard and prove themselves so they get stupid tattoos on their faces and do other things that they're not proud of later to prove themselves because they're scared. 
And can you talk a little bit about the programs that you've built? One of the unique things about them is the basis of using entrepreneurship and teaching incarcerated people the power of entrepreneurship and the principles of that. I think there's a lot of programs out there, but that certainly is a different angle. So I'd love to hear about why and how and how that sort of works. I, I imagine a lot of people would say, well, why don't you just teach them to get a job? Like what, <laughs> That seems like a real, a real stretch. So people out of prison do need to get a job so that they can pay taxes, support themselves, support their families, and stay out of prison. But we attract them with the idea of transforming your hustle because a disproportionately high number of people in prison are natural-born hustlers, natural-born or naturally-made hustlers because of their difficult circumstances. Most wardens would tell you that their cells are filled with these hustlers who are selling all kinds of things illegally from stamps to lottery tickets to cigarettes to you name it. And there's that saying, you can't take the hustle out of the hustler. So what if you could transform it into legal entrepreneurship? I'm aware that not everyone in prison would make a great legal entrepreneur. But sometimes that dream of entrepreneurship and learning the skills that it takes to become an entrepreneur, to present yourself to investors, for example, they're similar to the skills that you need to present yourself to an employer or to the parole board to obtain your freedom. The dream of owning your own business can also create hope that causes people to stop acting out in violence. But many of them truly are amazing entrepreneurs and have that skill set. So if we teach them how to read, how to properly channel that entrepreneurial energy, they've got what it takes to build successful businesses. And in the programs that I've started, the two programs I've started have collectively incubated more than 450 small businesses created by men and women out of prison who not only provide employment for themselves, but then have also created employment for other people with criminal histories. And can you explain a little bit for everyone, and then we'll get into my experience, but what what the program looks like and sort of what it does. And then also the data, because then you have some really sure. extraordinary data. So I'm on my third venture now. The first one was called Prison Entrepreneurship Program that is still going in Texas 15 years later. The second one was called Defy Ventures that is going nationally. And my third and latest is called Hustle 2.0. And I'm currently piloting it in the California prison system, hoping to scale that nationally. And with Hustle 2.0, we not only focus on returning citizens, is what people who are coming home soon is called, but I also see value in um, people who are facing life in prison. Last night at a dinner, someone said that they're my free marketing agents or something like that because they're in there. Lifers, a lot of times, have much of the credibility in prison. And I believe that they can still live a life of dignity and purpose from behind bars. And when they take ownership of a program like this, a rehabilitation program, it's an amazing thing. So at Hustle 2.0, we have eight different areas where they can major. Entrepreneurship is one of them. We recognize that not everyone is going to want to become an entrepreneur. That's fine. Employment is another one of those areas. Parole board readiness and reentry planning are other areas. Parenting personal growth. And personal growth ranges from learning etiquette and how to shake people's hands. Um, Personal growth includes personal finance, technology skills. Imagine being locked up 20 years and having never had an email account. You don't know what Google is. You don't know how to use a cell phone. It's intimidating. You'll learn how to speak another language. So the areas that we offer curriculum in include also criminal thinking, victim awareness. It's a comprehensive training program. 
and the incarcerated individual can pick his top areas. There's some required coursework areas that everyone has to take, some of the character development stuff, and they touch on each of the areas. And it's an in-prison training program that is rigorous. And one of the things that differentiates our work from the other programs that I've started or almost any other program out there is that our coursework, our, our courses are actually written by incarcerated individuals who have a lot of cred within the prison system. Multiple guys who are authors of the curriculum actually spent 32 consecutive years in solitary confinement. So the curriculum is fun. It's engaging. It contains their artwork. It contains crossword puzzles and Mad Libs and riddles and all types of things. And our goal with it is not only to get people who normally program in prison to want to program. I call them the nerds. I, I look at the prison population as roughly a third, a third, and a third. About a third of them want to get ahead, and any programming opportunity, they'll jump on it. The bottom third, I call them the haters. They're the ones who never want to program and cause all the problems in prison. And then the middle third are the stragglers, who sometimes want to program, but then they get caught up with the stuff. And we've designed curriculum that the top third, the nerds, will definitely want to be a part of, but that is so cool that even the haters can't help but get their, want to get their hands on it. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And, you know, you're helping, I mean, you're helping clearly one group of people, but I think you're helping another group of people in a, in a different way. So your programs involve bringing groups of volunteers, business leaders, entrepreneurs to meet and spend the day with the people that you're working with. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and the, sort of the impact on, on that side of the world? For, but I would, I would assume for 90% of them, this is probably the first time they've been in a, 
a maximum security prison before or how to look at a totally different side of something like this that may be different than what they perceived. Yep. So a lot of the idea behind what we do is that we bring top change makers together. Change makers who are currently incarcerated and then top thought leaders and change makers on the outside. Many of the volunteers who we, we bring in and we'll bring in groups of up to a hundred volunteers at a time uh, have great privilege have a lot of influence, have friends, they have companies that could hire our guys, and they serve as business coaches, as mentors, they give feedback. But then throughout the day, we do many activities that level the playing field as well, so that our volunteers realize that they're not some hero there to come hug a thug or to look down on anybody, because I'm not into the idea of pity or saving people. But instead, our volunteers end up also gaining a lot from it. it. I think you can talk about what it yeah. was like for you, but many of our volunteers realize how dark your own heart can be when you're not forgiving. And so we run through a forgiveness drill where you can choose to forgive yourself or not. And our incarcerated guys, we call them mavericks. Our mavericks can also choose to forgive themselves or not. And a lot of times the volunteers come out of there saying that it was one of the top 10 experiences of their lives. They usually have a hard time putting words to it because they come in there filled with so much fear about the guys that they'll meet. And then they leave. It's hard to leave that place because you know that you're going home to whatever nice environment you have and the guys are going back to their cells. But you leave. You can't unsee what you saw that day. I agree that it, I try not to overuse the word life changing, but I, my, my, I said it was very perspective altering. What is the most common one or two things that you hear like thematically from the volunteers in terms of what really changed for them and what they were really most surprised by? At the risk of sounding too crazy about this, I mean, volunteers will regularly say after the birth of my children, this was one of the most profound days of my life. I think that there's a shock and awe factor to this, I think because people are so scared and because people's own judgments of the people that they're going to see, their judgments are so strong before they come in and the fear is so high that then when you walk in through the tunnel of love with these guys who are hooping and hollering and have smiles on their faces, and even if they have tattoos all over their faces, their energy is so warm and receptive and grateful and excited and we have a lot of fun together. This is not a down and out experience. We have lip sync contests. And so our volunteers are literally dancing in prison, having lip sync contests, doing hardcore business coaching. If you come back for a subsequent event where our guys get more business coaching, a lot of our investors will say those pitches were not like good for someone who was incarcerated. Those pitches rival the pitches that I hear at any top business school or in any other incubator program. So people are blown away, I think, because their perceptions coming in are so negative. And then they see this other thing, this other part of humanity that you could have never imagined. And I think it teaches you something about your own judgments. I don't know. You tell me, Bob. <laughs> what yeah, was well, it like I, for you? I mean, we all judge, right? And we judge from our, our own biases. And I think the, a couple of the things that I took away was... It became clear to me how unlevel the playing field is. And I think it's easy to judge, you know, someone's action or behavior in time. Oh, they did this. But then you hear what came before it. You know, it's not different than I 
joke about with my boys. You know, one comes in and it hit the other over the head with a bat, and you say, "Well, why would you do that?" Well, he threw the ball at me, and and it could just it just keeps going back. But I had I had real empathy for their stories, and also realizing that they just these are not people that started on a level playing field, and actually. He's going to ask you this question, but I think we could talk about this because I think you probably, I don't remember all the stats or the numbers. I just know it's significant. But can you talk I a little bit a about about the, is it walk the line mm-hmm. or the walk the line yeah, ex- the exercise, line exercise yep. and some of those real differences between what the volunteers had in, in their childhood and, and what the, the Mavericks had in their childhood? Because I think, first of all, that I've been through that exercise in a business setting and in, in the prison setting, both incredibly powerful but i it was that difference that i mean i think that's what a lot of people will remember the the books example and the how young they were when they first yeah. were arrested yeah so first i'll i'll use this opportunity yeah. to share a couple of statistics about the programs i've started so the two programs i've started up until now have served a combined more than 6000 people and both programs have validated verified 3 year recidivism rates of less than 7%. Nationally, 76.6% of people get rearrested within five years. And so um, these are groundbreaking programs and statistics, and uh, especially because we accept 100% of people who apply to the programs and um, have served people across many prison systems. On the line exercise, the goal of that exercise, we draw a line of tape down the middle of the gym and volunteers stand on one side and our Mavericks are on the other side. And if the question is true, you step to the line. And we call out a long series of statements. But when we talk about childhoods, it's typically where we can see the differences between the two groups. So questions like, Um, Add up how many books you had in your household growing up. If you had more than 50 books, step to the line. And on our volunteer side, every volunteer is at the line. On the Maverick side, usually 10% or 20% of the Mavericks are at the line. 80% of them are not because they were not raised typically in environments where learning or reading was valued. Step to the line if you heard gunshots in your neighborhood growing up. Every maverick is at the line. Usually no volunteers are at the line. And so we ask the mavericks, at what age did you become desensitized to violence? And they have to think about that because violence was normal for them. Nearly all of them were abused in their childhoods. And then we we do uh, step to the line if you are first arrested before the age of 18. And I count backwards, 16, 14, 12, 10. And about a quarter of our guys were first arrested before the age of 10. And what I say to people is we call America the land of second chances, yet we make handcuffs that are small enough to fit around the wrists of even a four-year-old. And I was in prison three days ago with a guy who was first arrested At the age of four, he was put in a jail cell by himself. So he was with his mother. He's black. His mom is black. They were arrested for allegedly shoplifting a pair of shoes. So he was thrown in a jail cell for a couple days, and then they were found to be not guilty of it. They actually paid it for and bought the shoes. But this child was a four-year-old in a jail cell by himself, and he is not the first four-year-old that I've met who's gone through that circumstance. So it's crazy. Some of our guys are arrested at the age of six for stealing pencils when they didn't have it. Some of our guys were arrested as little kids 
for breaking into their own homes. Their mom locked the door and then they were trying to get back in and then they were arrested and taken to prison. So these might sound like one-offs and unfortunately they're not. And the rest of them were arrested as teenagers. They made bad decisions. Yes, they did. They were teenagers. How many of us didn't make bad decisions as teenagers? And that just started the whole cycle for them. I mean, their cycles were really started as children when they were physically and sexually abused as well. Yeah, and I've actually been reading a bunch of books that have talked about the compounding value in in success and that you you do these things, little things, 1%, and you do it over and over again, and then you have a win, and then suddenly you have this kind of big hockey stick that you didn't see coming. And and really what I saw from that was the the inverse version of that, right? You had this thing when you were seven and you threw a rock through a window, and but there was no dad to get you out of it. And right. now that's on your record, and now you shoplift, and now that's on your record. And then... Yep. So then you have this experience you're talking about where you do the same thing that someone else did and you, and you get in trouble, but now you, you have a prior record. And it just seems like it cascades very quickly because there are no get-out-of-jail-free cards. I, yeah. It's a bad analogy. but <laughs> Yeah, and it, it does cascade quickly. And then especially because most of the people I work with were convicted for their long-term sentence at such a young age, like as teenagers. When you're 15 years old and you're given a 15-year sentence, that's the rest of your life as far as you're concerned. I mean, even three or four years feels like forever. And so then when they're sent to the big house with the, the big guys, yeah, their chance of acting out in stupidity is very, very high to try to prove themselves. And they think they feel hopeless until they get an opportunity to program with something like we do. And I like what you just said about that cascading effect because we see how incredibly quickly their perspective can be turned around and how easy it is to bring hope to such a dark place when we bring them resources and give them opportunities to learn. Our guys are hungry to learn. They're so thankful for the opportunity And I say this all the time, I work in the field of corrections, yet there's nearly nothing corrective about it. Of all the dollars, I I work primarily in the California prison system, taxpayers spend $75,000 per year on average incarcerating one person for one year. The people I serve average 20 years in prison, so do the math on that. Our program costs around $1,000 a head, yet there's very limited funding for rehabilitative opportunities and even if you're listening to this someone as someone who's tough on crime, 95% of people who are incarcerated, they end up coming home. What kind of neighbor do you want coming back? Do you love spending your dollars on this population or would you rather spend it on inner city kids? And I think anyone would rather spend their time, effort, myself included, on kids rather than on adults who have screwed up. It's not the sexiest thing in the world. Yet if we don't, put in time, effort, and attention into rehabilitation, they're just going to be part of that 76.6% of people who end up going back because they don't know anything else. They don't have hope for something better. So this is a totally curable problem. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 
36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Well, also, you could argue... Again, a lot of chicken and egg here that those are a lot of the fathers of the kids who are at home who are at risk for repeating the cycle of violence, right? So if yeah. you can put them back in their life, that The might... majority of our adults have children, and I'm a big fan of improving education and after-school kids program, yet I have never, ever in my life seen an after-school kids program that is more effective than a committed parent who's teaching the values to their own children. And so that's why we teach parenting. And even from behind bars, we can see the restorative effect when a parent starts to tell their own child that he loves them, that he's proud of them. How are you doing in school? When We teach them how to have a conversation with them over the phone. And for some of you who are listening to this who are parents, you might be like, what's wrong with these people? Well, our guys never had parents. They weren't taught how to properly parent. They were just beat and abandoned. And so it is something that you need to be taught. But our guys are so willing to learn this. Why would we not teach it to them so that their children stop being victims and so their children don't become perpetrators? Because we see the value when our parents instill these values in their own children. And then when our our dads get out and then they return back to their families, they take so much pride in becoming the fathers that they've always wanted to be. Can you share two stories, I guess, from both sides? I'd love to hear one um, from someone who's gotten out through the program and what they've done, and then also from the volunteer side in terms of impact, like someone who's reached out to you, went home, changed their life, changed their perspective. I'm sure you have a, a good one on both sides. Sure. Our best-known success story is a guy named Cos Marte who got out after five years of prison time and founded a company called Conbody, and his son was, I believe, eight years old when he got out of prison. And he would talk about how when he was incarcerated, one of the hardest things was his son was even younger than that. And after the visit, his son would like scream and kick and cry saying, I don't want to let go of my daddy. And the officers would escort Koss back to his cell and how heartbreaking that was and how committed Koss was to reversing that. Koss was quite overweight while he was incarcerated, was told that he was so overweight that he would... um, he could die early from all of his cholesterol and all that. He lost a whole bunch of weight in prison, taught other incarcerated I say, I, I people. I met him. He's, he's tiny. He is now. <laughs> yeah. He's in shape now. He better be with the business that he runs now. And he got other incarcerated people to lose a collective 1,000 pounds. And now in just several years since his release, and he came back to volunteer with us at Hustle 2.0, he started this business, Conbody, that has served I think 15,000 customers, even worldwide. He has conbodylive.com. And uh, you can sign up for it, I think, for like five bucks a month, and you'll be paired up with a celly. And then tough guys out of, out of prison will yell at you and give you the workout of your life. 
And um, I'm really proud of him because he's also hired 20 people with criminal histories, and we helped him to raise $250,000 to get his business off the ground. So he's reconnected as a father, as a leader, as an advocate, as a volunteer, as a CEO. He's an amazing person. And provides employment for people. Yeah, not just paying his taxes, but getting others to else. And, and how about on the volunteer side? Um, we can maybe use, uh, there's so many yeah. since I've brought 7,000 people, but Jason Gaynard, the guy who connected us. Yeah. And um, so Jason runs a group called Mastermind Talks, and he had me come and present there and do the line exercise at his conference. And then he recruited people from this MMT network, and I think there were 50 of you or something yeah. who came that day to, to the Kern Valley prison event. And um, he, through this community now, I think there was $154,000 in uh, commitments that were raised that day to continue the program at Kern Valley. So I'm really grateful for that because if it weren't for all of you and if it weren't for Jason and his wife Candace's leadership and initiative in this and backing of it, all these opportunities wouldn't happen. Um, there's another guy here. We're at a conference right now, and a guy named Rich Manders brought me here to speak to everyone here, and now it looks like we're going to come together to launch the program at another prison as well. So especially when these uh, ringleaders yeah. bring us out and decide to apply their skills, talents, their networks to raising the capital and bringing in the, the humans and the connection, then it makes a lot of dreams come true. So you, look, you've made your career on helping people with, with second chances. You've written a book on it, which we'll provide the link to. And I know you talked really openly about having your own second chances and, and really you know, that being important to you. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your experience? Because it hasn't, hasn't all been a, a straight line either. It certainly <laughs> has not been a straight line. So I've been doing this work now for about 15 years. Five years into it, after I started the Texas prison program, I was divorced after nine years of marriage. And uh, in the wake of my divorce, I made some decisions that I regret to this day. Instead of reaching out to the community of people who loved and supported me, I felt so ashamed of the stigma of divorce that I reached out only to people who I felt understood failure and shame. And those were people who had gotten out of prison. They were released graduates of my Texas program. And then in a moment of weakness, I had some relationships with people out of prison. I was honest about it. That was 10 years ago. And when the Texas prison system heard about it, they forced my resignation very publicly in the media. And I was so covered in shame after that. I didn't want to keep living. I thought my future, I would have no future. And I really lived to do this work. So I took a year off, got a lot of therapy, came back to life because of people who believed in me when I thought I had nothing to offer the world. And I started Defy Ventures. And I, I led Defy for, I think, eight years and started out of New York and scaled it nationally. I think um, largely because of my public admissions of these consensual adult relationships that I had in my past and because of the rapidly growing success of Defy and defying all these odds, um, I have had a target on my back. And um, I'm no stranger to dangerous threats and allegations and a lot of investigations. And I faced my most serious attack a year ago when I was accused of a whole host of very damaging things from 
embezzlement and misappropriation of funds and lying about the program's outstanding results and nearly every sexual allegation under the sun. And I resigned, uh, again, in a very, very difficult position a year ago, not because the allegations contained truth, but because I wanted to fight to live on and I wanted to spare the organization of the scandal that I brought to it. I'm thankful that the investigation results vindicated Defy's performance and um, showed how much crap was invented in a stated campaign to eliminate Defy. And it would have been a good time for me to walk away and be like, I'm done with this work in this sector because um, the behind the scenes part of it has been more than difficult. But the guys are my motivation. And a week after my resignation, when I, wa- when I went back to Pelican Bay State Prison, where I've started Hustle 2.0 from, the warden said, welcome to the club. You want to know how many allegations I have against me from this week? And thankfully, correctional officials and so many of our volunteers, they know my character. I know who I am. And they see the work that I do, and they wanted to continue to give me an opportunity to serve. And I feel grateful for that. And the guys at Pelican Bay said, Kat, we need you to get your happiness back because our happiness depends on your happiness. And most of the people that I work with, the vast majority were guilty as charged. But I have some guys who were 15 years old given a life sentence for something that they, to this day, say that they were not guilty for. And... Now that I've been accused of things that I didn't do, I just have that much more empathy for them. And I'm like, if I give up, if I turn my back on them, who will be there to fight for them? And so I have continued to follow my conviction to serve them despite the tremendous hardships. And I'm grateful to know that so many of the people who are continuing to give me another chance, like you, um, and these wardens who are, we have quite the wait list of people who want us to come in there. It's an honor to get to do this work. So I'll keep, I guess I'll just keep going. People say that I'm like the cat with nine lives, and I hope that's not a true statement because I've had about three of them, and that's enough. Well, how can people get involved who listen to this? What are the different ways to get involved? I mean, I know one of the things about your new business is that you want it to be a sustainable business and not be raising money all the time. So I know there are people listening to this saying, I'm not sure I want to go to prison, but maybe I want to go to prison, or how can I help? So what's the best way for people to connect with you? Thank you for asking that. Our website is hustle20.com. So H-U-S-T-L-E, the number two, the number zero, dot com. You can go there, and if you are interested in coming to prison, then we can let you know one of our upcoming trips. We are building this as a sustainable public benefit corporation. Over the past 14 years of doing my penance in the nonprofit sector and raising $27 million between the two organizations for this work, I have now come up with what I believe is a smarter, more efficient model to gain contracts from the state and with the results that I've been able to prove in all this time in this sector, we believe that we can save states and governments a whole lot of money. And so we're building a sustainable model. We're raising investment capital, but it's we don't need a whole lot. Um, so investors could reach out as well through the website, and then I'll, I can respond. But um, we'd love to have you come to prison if you're interested in that. 
If you're a subject matter expert, many of our courses are going to be co-authored by people on the outside. So if you're an expert in parenting or an expert in entrepreneurship, tell us what area, and then we could take a look at that to see if we have a need for some co-authoring of courses as well. All right, great. Well, Kat, thank you for sharing your story today. You've set an amazing example of how courage and adversity and a willingness to fail and share that failure are actually vital to being successful as as an entrepreneur and in, in anything in life. I'm so thankful, Bob, that you're using your network and your voice to allow me to be an advocate for people who are usually voiceless and are largely forgotten, but have so much potential. I like to say that they represent America's most overlooked talent pool. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Cat Hustle 2.0, her book and programs on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to Apple Podcasts Stitcher or your preferred podcast service and leave us a review. You can also learn how to review by following the link on the podcast page. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.